For me, it began in 1992 with an ending. I was five years old and happened upon a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. From that moment forward, the Man of Steel has been my favorite character. And now on this podcast, I'm exploring my fandom and examining the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton across media for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me for the first of two episodes examining the classic 1950s television series, Adventures of Superman, is my dear friend and returning guest, Rich Roney. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. There's no one else I would even dream of doing these episodes with. You and I have been talking about Adventures of Superman on almost a weekly basis for months now. Yeah. Yeah, I I would say for your listeners, uh, because this is fascinating, I would say about 10 or 11 or 12 weeks ago, obviously Anthony had invited me to participate. And um, I'm thinking Anthony was probably one weekend in late September, maybe early October, it was a rainy, a raw Saturday. I figured, you know, I'm going to get a head start. I'm going to start watching some of these DVDs. And quite bluntly, I figured I'd just watch, you know, maybe one or two and refresh my memory. Coincidentally, I watched about four of them, and then I called you. And totally by coincidence, you likewise had watched. And to your listeners, I, I really wish you could have heard the very first season one, episode one, was Superman on Earth. And I had never seen that episode, even though it was probably 65 years plus old. But we had such a jazzed discussion, and it was such, you know, uh, they didn't skimp on the production, or they they did a good job weaving a lot of good stuff together in a 25-minute episode that showed the whole, you know, uh, decimation of Krypton and the transplant, uh, you know, the rocket to Earth, and then even the... Uh, the rearing and raising of Clark from a child to becoming the reporter for the Daily Planet. We were so jazzed in that. Um, I, it, was, it was lightning in a bottle. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun. And I'll be honest, like I felt some pressure with this recording because we've had so many really fun chats. And I'm like, boy, I really hope we can recreate it uh, for listeners and viewers on this podcast. But I, I'm confident that that we'll be able to. But it, it really is funny. I mean, yes, the serendipity of both of us uh, beginning our rewatches at the same time. Uh, but even before that, you know, when I first started mapping out this podcast series, uh, very early on, I knew that this was something that I wanted to cover at some point. And, you know, you were immediately the first person who came to mind because I knew you had grown up watching Adventures of Superman. You were a fan of it. And I remember I was one of my earliest conversations with you about this podcast series and I think it was as soon as I brought up Adventures of Superman, I, my next breath, I was going to ask if you wanted to be the guest. And I think before I even got there, you volunteered. Oh, I cut you off. No, yeah, but I'm I so glad. I cut you off. And uh, listen, if I may, to interrupt for 30 seconds, one of the best bosses I ever had said, when you're, when you're going to write a paper or you're going to do a communication or give a presentation, the most important thing you have to say, say that first. So first and foremost, I want to express my thanks to you. I, to your listeners, I figured I'd do this off memory or I'd watch three or four episodes. But Anthony, I got to tell you sincerely, the discussions we've had, I've done a lot of research offline. I've checked stuff on Wikipedia, on Google. I've watched many more episodes than I planned. 
I've derived so much enjoyment out of this. So I really have to thank you. It has intensified my appreciation for the character, and it's 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 intensified my appreciation for George Reeves as an actor. Uh, so I, I tip my hat to you. I thank you. I've derived tremendous joy out of this. And candidly to your listeners, especially given the fact that the whole country's in the, the throngs of a pandemic, it's helped me kind of keep my, my um, positive energy up. So thank you. So I'll get into the show whenever you're ready to go. But I wanted to express my gratitude. Well, I re- I very much appreciate that, and I reciprocate the feeling. I mean, honestly, and we, you know, you and I have said this to each other off mic as well, but it's, you know, it, it's worth having on the record that, uh, you know, I don't know that I would have been as excited to do these episodes. I don't know that I would have done two episodes on Adventures of Superman had I not had you. I mean, the fact that you were as enthusiastic as as you have been, uh, you know, again, I've enjoyed our conversations so much, and and really you know, your enthusiasm and energy have fed my own with my own rewatch. So it goes both ways and I really appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, let's get into the show uh, just to kind of set the table a little bit for anyone who uh, either is, is younger and never experienced the show, or maybe if you're new to Superman, Adventures of Superman, uh, 1950s television series that uh, it ran from 1952 to 1958. So it spanned six seasons the first two seasons consisted of 26 episodes apiece and were shot and aired in black and white. Seasons three through six were 13 episodes apiece. They were shot in color, originally broadcast in black and white, and then subsequently aired in color uh, during syndication. And the entire series has lived in syndication for all of these decades. And, you know, for generations of, of Superman fans, I think for, for a lot of folks, it was their first introduction to the character. And... For purposes of this podcast episode in particular, we'll primarily be focusing on the first two seasons uh, for reasons that I think we'll, we'll get into shortly. Uh, and then we're also going to do another episode in two weeks where we talk a little bit uh, perhaps about the, the color episodes in the later seasons and, and even more so, I think, about the legacy of the show uh, because there, there are a number of items there to, to sort of unpack. Uh, but I wanted to start by having us each speak about the role that the show has played in our respective Superman fan journeys. And I'm going to go first because it's real short for me. Um, Until now, it played no role in my Superman fan journey. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast series in the first place. You know, as much as I've been this lifelong Superman fan, you know, there's plenty, plenty that I've never read or watched. Um, As far as watching, though, specifically, you know, when we talk about TV and movie adaptations of Superman, this was really the big, the big gap for me. I mean, I've, I've watched almost everything else when we talk about the Superman adaptations, but Adventures of Superman was a big, big gap for me. And, you know, I knew of it, certainly, right? Uh, you know, it's been written about in books and articles. And, you know, there have been numerous Superman uh, documentaries and uh, special features on DVDs and things like that where they've talked about the show, uh, where I've seen interviews with the surviving cast members, where I've seen some footage. Uh, but that was really the, where most of my exposure to Adventures of Superman came from, was reading about it uh, or, you know, or watching you know, documentary segments about it. The only real memory I have of watching the show itself was uh, when I was a little kid, probably early elementary school. Uh, I remember being at my grandparents' apartment in the Bronx, and I remember my mom was in the kitchen with, with uh, my grandparents. I was in the living room, and I remember I do have this memory of watching the reruns on their television, but... 
I have little memory of the specifics of the episodes, and at most, maybe I watched a handful. So until now, Adventures of Superman, despite being, you know, uh, a really big piece of the character's history, you know, especially on film, uh, it, it really didn't play a role in my Superman fan journey. But I know that it, it did play a big role in yours. Uh, so would you mind, you know, explaining for our, for our listeners and viewers, uh, you know, what your experience was and, and continues to be with the show? Yeah, yeah. And to your point, you know, you gave the facts, right? It ran from 1952 to 58. Um, I was born in 56. And I can remember being, you know, maybe five or six or thereabouts, just starting to watch the show. Now, uh, for your listeners, I do want to uh, clarify this. Um, again, this I was watching it probably when I, you know, the early 1960s, 62, 63, 64. Um, it definitely triggered my interest in comics because I saw the character on the TV show. And then I can remember, you know, when it being really young, like with my dad going to the barber shop and seeing some of the comics on, on a side table. But then also the first comic I ever bought was World's Finest, which was a team up with Superman and Batman. And I immediately recognized the Superman costume. Um, you know, quite frankly, it was the shirt you're wearing right now, you know, the bold blue and the, the red and the yellow. And I was just gravitated to that. So the show triggered my interest in reading comics. And that's been a hobby I've had, uh, oh, easily for the last 55 plus years. So uh, I will say, um, to share this with your, your listeners, I remember watching this you know, maybe from the time I was five or six up till I was about 11 or so. And that was the mid-1960s. And then the Batman TV show came into play, and it was much more modern. So this this black and white TV show that was shown on reruns was really kind of pushed to the background. But then over the past uh, 11 or 12 weeks, I've just immersed myself in this, and it's given me an intense, wonderful appreciation for a, a, a host of issues with respect to this show. So, yeah, no, that's terrific. I mean, do you remember the first episode that you saw when you were a kid? No, no, but I can remember being fascinated with the character. And if I may, for your listeners, uh, the intro, uh, the intro to both the radio show that predated this, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And then this show itself, uh, there's a little narr narration at the beginning that kind of gives 30 seconds of backdrop explains who the character is and who Clark Kent is, but they always describe Superman as, quote, strange visitor from another planet. So when I was about, uh, I guess, eight or nine, I bought my first comic. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of dabbled in comics a little bit before, but I didn't buy any. And this was the one that explains Superman's relationship to Krypton. And I never knew that. So I don't, I, I do remember watching the episode. Uh, or episodes, and, you know, Anthony, I'm sure you'll speak to this. There was not a big budget. It was a very, very limited budget. They pumped these things out. They were really like a, um, 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 a B-movie serial. Uh, not, not a lot of money for budget. Real tight production schedule. They pumped these things out. So the characters, the, the principal characters, you know, Superman, Clark, Perry White, Lois, Jimmy, Inspector Henderson, he was almost, uh, he was in the TV show, but not the comics. They virtually wore the same clothes every episode because that offered certain efficiencies. 
so the episode itself doesn't stand out. Um, and then I, I do want to say this because I think it will enhance our discussion. To me, from, from the research I've done and from my own viewing, there's kind of three segments of time with the, these episodes. Um, it was kind of the first 26 episodes were filmed, I'm going to call it on spec. They, they produced the first 26 episodes, but they didn't have um, a network or a purchaser or a sponsor. And then along came Kellogg's that became the sponsor. But for the season one, it was really in TV Guide and, and on television. It was, it was kind of portrayed as a crime drama. And then in season two, there was a shift. The showrunner from season one kind of left, and DC brought in two story editors and, and writers. Um, Whitney Ellsworth was one of the big story editors for the show, and he brought one of his editors who wrote comics, Mort Weisinger, in to uh, you know, play a role. So the two of them took a train ride from New York to California gearing up for season two. From somewhere I read that they kind of charted out like 15 episodes or so. And later on, uh, I, I didn't do the research for today, but there is a definite synergy between the comics and the TV show. There's about um, anywhere possibly from five to ten situations where there's a story in the comic book and there's also a TV show with either the same title or the same general premise. But they charted these out. So season one was a crime drama. Season two was the transition where it toned down the darkness and the noir. Uh, it kind of enhanced the comic book characterization a little bit more. Uh, it embraced science fiction a little bit more. And then really seasons three through six, I think, were much more child-oriented. They really, really kind of knew that was their audience. And candidly... I enjoy the first two infinitely more. Um, probably the primary reasons are it was a little more serious because in, in seasons three to six, the gangsters were just caricatures. They were kind of silly, and it was so nonviolent, it just really didn't capture my interest. Whereas seasons one and two were more serious, a little bit more gritty, a little more noir-oriented. Season two was a little more science fiction-oriented. So I gravitated more much to the first two seasons and enjoyed those. Yeah, well said. I mean, you, you laid out a lot there and you really encapsulated a lot about, uh, the, you know, the style and the, and the production and the history of the show. And uh, yeah, for purposes of, of this recording, uh, I watched the entirety of seasons one and two. Uh, and I did this over, <laughs> over the past uh, few months. And there were periods where I was a little bit more diligent with my watching and, and other times where... Uh, you know, I, I kind of fell behind and I had to play catch up. I will admit that over the past two days, I've watched <laughs> probably a good dozen, dozen or so episodes. And I, I really can't stress enough how much I enjoyed this viewing project. And, you know, it's interesting because when you and I had that, uh, one of those earliest phone calls where we had both, um, by coincidence, watched the first two episodes of the show, we spoke about them and, you know, I, I will admit here, you know, we 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 kind of busted on them a little bit, right? We poked fun at some of the things that were a little silly. And I will be honest that after just those first two episodes, I kind of thought that was how I was going to be viewing the series 
moving forward. Not not watching it to make fun of it, but sort of, you know, noticing the seams and, and uh, you know, things that were out of date, you know, sort of viewing it in that context. And I'm happy to report that as I move forward through the rest of season one and, and season two, I mean, I it's not something that I w- I've been watching to, to laugh or make fun of. It's not something that I've been watching, ironically. I've genuinely like genuinely enjoyed the show, uh, for numerous reasons that, that I'll get into. Uh, and, but it, it's, it's really been a, a magnificent viewing project. And, you know, for anyone who's, you know, uh, taking in this podcast, if you've never watched, or if you haven't watched in a long time, I, I really do recommend it. There's a lot, there's a lot to enjoy with the show. I just want to circle back for a second to, uh, again, your viewing history of, of Adventures of Superman when you were a kid, because I know you've shared with me that um, the the last, the, the Superman on Earth, the pilot episode that you finally watched now, this was the first time you had seen it, right? You missed it as a kid. Yes, I missed it as a kid. And that, that's something, uh, I want to give an answer on that, but I do want to urge your listeners, if you can, uh, Anthony and I both derived tremendous joy out of this. I would try to, you know, cherry pick. You know, you could go in and, you know, through a streaming service or through uh, one of the other services, see some of these things. We'll speak about some of the episodes that we think um, stand out. Um, but getting back to your question, so, you know, as a child, um, my family and I, we lived in outside of Chicago from 1958 to 1970. Now, the show was broadcast originally from 52 to 58. And then when I was a child in the early 1960s, again, you know, from like 1962 to maybe 66, 67, um, it would be displayed on reruns on one of the local stations. Now, at that time, Growing up outside Chicago, the mid-1960s, there were the, the flagship networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and there were maybe two local stations, and that was it. So in the summertime, uh, WGN, which was their Channel 9, um, would broadcast the reruns from the, the Adventures of Superman. But it was all catch as catch can. I mean, at that time... Um, I do remember, you know, being able to read and on occasion checking the TV guide or the newspaper and stuff, but it wouldn't give a synopsis. It would just say, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, Adventures of Superman. So I could discern that there were differences between the, the accurate first two seasons that were purely black and white and the latter four seasons, um, both in tone and, and in the pictures and the style of the costume. And I think that's because Anthony, exactly what you said, they were forethinking and proactive enough to film the last four seasons in color, but they only displayed them in black and white, but you can tell there were some differences. Uh, George Reeves was a little bit heavier in the latter four seasons. Um, but we didn't, there was no rhyme or reason. And as I said early on, the first season was really a crime drama. And from some of the reading I did, um, when Kellogg's became the sponsor, they even had some of the first season episodes toned down because they were a little violent. They were a little dark. They were a little creepy. So they edited them and cut cut things a little bit. Um, on the DVD or what you're going to see via streaming service will be the complete show. So you'll see the whole thing in its entirety. But I think at that time, um, the 
managers of WGN were very, very child-oriented, uh, and they were concerned about the, the influence of these shows on children. Um, there's one thing that I think is fascinating, and there's we're going to get onto this as a, uh, in collaboration. But in season two, there's a standout episode. Um, and I don't want to give the details away because I think we'll we'll dig into that a little bit later on. But there's one point in time when Superman uh, was struck with amnesia, and he's really wrestling, trying to fathom his true identity and work through a lot of issues. He's physically weak and hurt, and he's got amnesia. And he's puzzling through, and he's working through some questions, and he goes to Jimmy Olsen, he goes, geez, do you think the costume holds the powers? And Jimmy comes back with a very emphatic, no, it's not the costume. Superman has the powers. And that was so impressive because I do know there was a lot of concern and fear that young children would think Superman was real. And they think they could jump off a roof or they could jump off the back of the garage and not get hurt. So I was just impressed with both from the writing standpoint and the production standpoint. They kind of wove those things in. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a very important point. And I, I noticed that as well. Uh, and I know we, we had discussed that. And uh, the episode you're referring to, Panic in the Sky, we, we definitely have a lot more uh, to say about that. But uh, just, again, going back to the Superman on Earth, I remember you sharing that there was a, a, oh. a classmate of yours, right, or someone from the yeah. neighborhood who was talking about the episode. And you're like, what's he talking about? Because you hadn't seen it. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. I can I remember that, uh, oh, my God, like it was yesterday. I can remember the baseball field we were in. Uh, what we were doing, we were, you know, we were gearing up for uh, just a, not a formal little league game. It just a bunch of us would get together and play baseball. And I must've been about 10 or 11. And we were just waiting for other people to arrive and getting back to what I said before about this being catch as catch can. We were at the mercy of uh, the whims of the local TV manager. And, you know, clearly they didn't show these things sequentially, or if they did, it was just, you know, kind of uh, serendipity. Um, and Anthony, as you told your listeners, I never saw the season one, episode one, episode literally until about three months ago. And it's, it's titled Superman on earth. So I can remember this fellow, Tim Russell, who's a good friend of mine during elementary school. Um, we're, we're hanging out waiting for some of the other fellows to arrive. We're just going to play a catch up game of, of baseball. And, um, he, was excited and he spoke about this episode and I can remember him telling me about it. And I felt so hurt that I didn't get to see it. But again, this was the mercy of when they just show these things and the timing and the sequence of the episodes, they didn't do it in continuous fashion, but he described so much about it. And then literally when I watched the episode two and a half, three months ago, it was everything he said. I mean, one of the comments there in that very first episode, these 25-minute episodes, every one of these episodes, they pack a lot of stuff in. It's fast-paced. But um, in the episode, there was a comment. Young young Clark uh, goes home to his parents, and he's nervous about, uh, you know, just things he, he notices he's different from other boys his same age. And he tells his mother that, you know, hey, we were playing baseball, we were playing catch, and the ball got lost. But I was able to see it. And his mother just goes, well, Clark, that's no nothing to be worried about. You just got really good eyes. He goes, no, I was able to look through a rock and see it. And I can remember my friend describing that. 
And he also described stuff about Krypton and how it was portrayed. And I felt so hurt. Even though that was over 55 years ago, I can remember riding my bike home figuring, oh, shit, why did I go to this lousy baseball game? I should have been home watching the episode. No, I mean, you know, it's so true. And it's like, you know, we take that for granted now. I mean, these days between, you know, DVR and on demand and the streaming services, you know, if you miss something when it airs originally, it's no big deal at all. But uh, but yeah, you were really at the mercy of the of the programmers. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously the, the episodes have been out on DVD now for a while, but still, I mean, decades before you had it readily available to watch whenever you wanted. And uh, so it's fascinating. I'm glad you were you were finally able to watch it. I was I was actually surprised that they did the full origin uh, again. You know, I went into this pretty cold. I mean, you and I had some chats about it beforehand, but uh, for the most part, you know, I, I started watching these, you know, relatively cold and you know, just based on what I did know about the series as a whole, I really didn't think that they had devoted an episode to the telling of the origin, but they did. And, you know, within the span of 25 minutes, we go from Krypton to to Smallville to Metropolis. I mean, it really hits the major beats of the, really the traditional origin story that I think most people would be familiar with. There's not a ton of time for, you know, much, you know, development or emotion or nuance, specifically on Krypton. I mean, this Jorel was uh, there was really no hesitation about putting the baby in the rocket and sending him off. It was uh, <laughs> just just got right to it. Yes, yes, and uh, uh, again, Anthony said this so truthfully and sincerely and eloquently. We're not trying to uh, ridicule or diminish it, but for your listeners who are able to see it. Diplomatically, let's just say they didn't put a lot of production work into the background or the scenery or the effects. It's kind of a threadbare uh, scientific laboratory uh, that Jor-El is operating out of. Yeah, but, you know, and it's interesting because I I thought about this at the time, you know, uh, going back to what I was saying about a a relatively emotionless Jor-El, you know, sending his only son out into the to the depths of space. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, again, they didn't have a lot of time, right? But I think it's also probably a, a, a function of the the time period, right? I mean, we're talking about the early 1950s. Um, I, I don't know that an emotional Jor-El cradling his son, you know, imparting... Uh, Would have played. Yeah, right? I mean, I think that this was probably in keeping with the way, you know, 1950s notions of masculinity were, were considered at yeah. the time. No, I... That's a superb comment. I mean... This is really, you know, World War II had only been over for uh, six or seven years. Um, So it it was kind of the programming, the DNA makeup of the American male circa 1952. More stoic, more um, just serious. Um, But getting back to what you said, and again, 11 or 12 weeks ago was the first time I'd seen it. And the thoroughness, just the thoroughness of telling that whole story I mean, they even get get into parts of the story where Jor-El is making a plea to the Science Council. You know, he goes, look, I've got empirical data. I'm worried we're going to have problems, but we've got time to do things. Now, I think he was wrong. Uh, the the uh, Krypton quakes and the destruction of the planet came faster than even he had envisioned. But it does play out how he was – they didn't listen to him. He was effectively ridiculed. Um, they play out that, okay, hey, the whole planet's starting, you know, the, the earthquakes and 
things are really going to hell in a handbasket fast. He and Lara put young Kal-El into the rocket. Um, the special effects, I thought, you know, when they showed the rocket going through space and landing on Earth and the planets, for the time and that finite budget, I thought it was it was better than I expected. Yeah, um, you know, for that episode and the series as a whole, you know, I mean, certainly looking at it through, uh, you know, the lens of, of 2020, 2021, and, and everything that we've seen uh, accomplished via technology and film and television. I mean, yes, it, it, it is, you know, very basic. But to your point, I think they accomplished a lot with what they had. And I, I certainly, over and over as I was watching these episodes, I thought to myself, boy, like I can 100% see how kids in the 50s, 60s, 70s uh, were, were just so taken by this and how they were able to buy into this and how this really was a very worthy introduction to the character for generations of kids. I mean, I totally saw that. And, uh, but again, going back to that, to that first episode, like we keep saying, I mean, it, it, I think it also speaks to just the, the timelessness of the Superman origin story. You know, certain things change, of course, like in this version, uh, the Kents are named Eben and Sarah, right? We don't have Jonathan and Martha quite yet. But uh, again, like it really hits all of those beats. Jor-El's warnings go unheeded. They send Kal-El into space. The Kents find him. Uh, we visit with him during his adolescence where he's struggling with his powers. The scene that you referenced where he's seeing through the rock. Uh, we have the passing of Pa Kent and uh, Clark embarking on his adult journey, going to Metropolis, uh, adopting the Clark Kent reporter guys uh, and making his debut as Superman. And, you know, so it, like it hits all of the beats in a short amount of time and but the other thing that really stood out to me, again, just the richness of the Superman story is that, you know, this was, again, the 50s, you know, and it, it's crazy to think that at the time, you know, you only had a, a decade plus of the comics, you had the radio show, and you had the Fleischer cartoons. So, I mean, that's not nothing, but at the same time, you know, it's not like this television series had 80 years worth of movies and TV shows and comics to draw from. So I think it really, uh, you know, broke a lot of ground in, in what it was able to do and what it was able to bring to screen. And, you know, over all of these years, each time the origin story gets told, I think we get a new layer to it. We get a little bit more depth. There are new angles to explore. And so, you know, this, I think, was very much a starting point. And yes, it might feel a little bit basic compared to, you know, what we've seen in subsequent movies and television shows. But, you know, I think it, it accomplished a lot and it, and it did it in a short amount of time. And, and it did it well. It set up the character quickly and really hit the ground running. Agreed. To take Agreed. us right into episode two, which was probably, I don't know about you, but it was one of my two least favorite episodes <laughs> no, of the uh, entire Anthony, series. Yeah, Anthony, same here. Same here. Um, you uh, made uh, an inaccurate assumption. That was one of the episodes I had seen as a child. I didn't like it then. So I didn't watch it. I I leapt from um, the very, very, very first episode to the Broken Statues episode. Okay. Um, I, I, I knew the, the essence and the details of uh, episode two, but it never appealed to me. Even when I watched, I've seen it a couple of times, but um, it just never appealed to me. Uh, now, uh, I want to I let you comment, um, but I do have to say to your listeners, uh, regardless of what episode or season you watch, Jimmy Olsen has got to be a screenwriter's dream. <laughs> I mean, his ability to to give them what they need to fill the 25 minutes is is fantastic. 
Yeah. I mean, so the episode that we're re- referring to is the second episode of the series. Uh, I believe the title is The Haunted Lighthouse, but you and I know it as the Moose Island episode. Yes. And uh, in the episode, yeah, young young James Olsen uh, visits distant relatives on Moose Island, and he uh, stumbles upon a, a smuggling ring that's being run out of this, this lighthouse. You know, Clark and Superman don't appear until deep, deep into the episode. So it's yeah. really a Jimmy Olsen episode. And yeah, first 15 minutes are all Jimmy. Yeah. And to me, kind of an odd choice for the for the, you know, the second outing of the show. Uh, and that's why I was a little I was a little wary after just watching those first two episodes. But I, I would say those are not represent. I mean, again, as much as I did enjoy Superman on Earth, uh, neither that nor the, the Moose Island episode are really representative of the most of the rest of the episodes uh, of the first couple of seasons. Uh, but, you know, just going back to the production, uh, you hit on this before, and it really it's fascinating to me that uh, 26 episodes were produced on spec. I mean, the producers <laughs> made a full season's worth of episodes before they had a home for it. Um, and, of course, you know, what came first was the hour-long movie, Superman and the Mole Men. Uh, that was really their pilot, and after that, they created you know twenty four more episodes, and then Superman and the Mole Men uh, was repurposed as a two part episode at the end of season one. So again, whether you're on a streaming service or you're on the DVDs, you'll find Superman and the Mole Men as uh, a two part uh, season one finale, and that too. Again, it's really it's so fascinating to me because uh, Superman and the Mole Men also is very much an outlier compared to the rest of the first season, which, as you said, was very crime-oriented. They were really, uh, you know, little f- short film noirs. Uh, and Superman and the Mole Men dealt with this race of, of uh, you know, little people living under the earth, the Mole Men. And as much as you did have Clark and Lois investigating, right, and that was certainly a hallmark of the, of the entire series, um, you know, none of the action took place in Metropolis. There was no Daily Planet. Uh, again, no crooks and gangsters. It was really, again, as you said, you know, something that we would maybe see a little bit later on, something more sci-fi oriented and, with the moment. And it was also, um, for its time, thematically, it really touched on a, on a lot of, even that would stand up today, important social issues like uh, prejudice and not being discriminatory and xenophobic things. For its time, it really, really thematically touched on these questions. And then it was, you know, uh, uh, the true season one was a little more of a crime drama. But that first movie, boy, it, it does make you think when Superman's confronting the townspeople and he's standing up to them to protect these, these you know, um, visitors, you know, from the lower earth. Um, and then to, to the backdrop to the audience, these mole men... Uh, Long story short, I think there's some some um, oil drill uh, well in Texas that goes deepest, you know, his, mm-hmm. uh, deeper than ever before, and that's the 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 tunnel through which these mole men come up to the surface world. But sadly, they're radioactive, so they pose a threat to um, Earth people. Um, but Superman is very protective, and uh, it, it does touch on you know things against. Uh, anti-discrimination, anti-racial um, exclusion, xenophobia. It was pretty powerful, I think, for its time. Um, I was Sorry, I'll let you... No, I, I, I echo all of that. I was so impressed. I mistakenly thought that that original movie was called Superman versus the Mole Men. 
And it's not. It's Superman and the Mole Men. And that's a very important distinction. Um, if you Again, if you're on the streaming services or you're on the DVDs, uh, it was renamed The Unknown People. So it's a two-part story called The Unknown People. But again, uh, it was originally titled Superman and the Mole Men. And exactly to your point, uh, really the, the crux of that two-part story is Superman protecting these unknown people from the angry mob. And it was a turn that I really was not expecting and I really enjoyed. And I think that uh, you know, you you know, you always think about the the power that Superman has as a role model, and especially with a series like this, that you know, you had kids growing up watching this. You know, to see a character like Superman, you know, idolized by all of these kids, you know, taking a stand like that and saying like, no, like these people deserve to live, they deserve to be free, um, and and you know, really standing up to this angry mob. Uh, really resonated. I thought that was a very powerful episode. I, I didn't really go into that with such high hopes, uh, mostly because, again, I, you know, I was really was enjoying the crime-oriented season one, and then I knew we had, you know, this this Mole Men episode at the end, and I said, ah, you know, I don't know how good this is going to be, and I was really pleasantly surprised by the turn that it took. We have so much more to unpack. Let's take a super quick 30-second commercial break, and then we will uh, come right back with more. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. And we're back. So, Rich, uh, I want to I wanna share a listener question. So, uh, members of my Patreon page at a certain level have the option to uh, write a uh, question or a comment that I will read on the air. And this brought such a smile. To, I laughed when I read this, and I suspect that as I read it to you, you will have a similar reaction. And I know it will be a great springboard uh, into further discussion of these season one and season two episodes. So uh, Eric uh, Noriega wrote, there's an episode of Adventures of Superman where a bad guy learns Superman's secret identity. Superman basically decided to keep him prisoner. The guy dies trying to escape. I've looked for this episode for years, but haven't been able to learn much about it. It always bugged me as a kid that Superman would be okay knowing this guy died because he imprisoned him. Did I dream this episode? He no, his memory is spot on. Um, the episode is titled uh, "The Stolen Costume," and Anthony, uh, in anticipation of our chat, I watched that episode just yesterday. I, but I can remember as a child being disturbed at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> so, so to your listeners, uh, here's the backdrop. Um, I think this is what, what would you say? This is episode seven or nine of season one. It's, it's kind of early in the progression. Yeah. I think it's a, a little bit before the halfway point of the first season. Yeah. But it's titled the stolen costume. Long story short. Um, the daily planet is, uh, changing insurance carriers. and Clark has to go in for some sort of health exam, um, with the, uh, new group insurance medical plan. So he leaves his costume in this uh, secret closet in his apartment purely by coincidence there's a uh, very uh, elusive uh, rope burglar who you know repels down off of buildings and skyscrapers and breaks into apartments and steals stuff he is i guess spotted by the police as he happens to be at clark's apartment building clark's out 
you know, getting his medical exam. It's nighttime. This guy, to evade the police, bursts in. Um, hiding from the police, he hits the secret switch that opens the hidden closet, and he, he sees the costume, grabs the costume, and escapes. But as he's escaping, he is shot, Kept, kept catches a bullet in the back. And then he goes to his boss, and um, the boss is a is a is a, a crime crime boss. He's got uh, you know the quintessential mole, you know, pretty blonde woman. Um, actually, she was the smarter of the two in the episode. She connected all the dots. But um, Superman is just really anxious because his costume's out there. He doesn't know where it is, and he's afraid that someone's going to determine his identity, you know, because it was stolen out of his Clark Kent apartment. So he hire, uh, he engages one of his uh, detective, private detective friends, some guy named Candy. Um, and then there's there's a, a case of mistaken identity where the, the crime lord and his mole assume Candy is Superman. Uh, Clark is able to rescue Candy, break in, but he takes... Uh, the crime lord and his girlfriend to this uh, very, very cold mountaintop. And there's apparently off camera, there's a cabin, but he tells them, look, you know, uh, I got to figure out what to do. You're going to be safe in in this cabin. I'm going to go back and get some, some food and warm clothes, but do not try to climb down this mountain. Don't do it. You know, stay here till I can figure out what to do. Well, sure enough, they um, both, start climbing down and this is really like a huge mountain uh she's got high heels on he's got his suit on and uh i will say uh the bad guy was not slim he was kind of he liked he liked his steak uh steak dinners and gin and tonics he puffed up a bit so he's kind of rolling down some of these rocks and he's telling his girlfriend come on down it's a cinch well her high heels slip on this icy patch uh, that's like probably the uh, 45 degree angle. She falls into him. They fall and die. Uh, the amazing thing was it just quickly cuts to the next scene where Candy's kind of debriefing with Clark and goes, hey, Clark, you're in a much better mood. He goes, yep, I, I got that thing that was lost back, you know. Uh, but, boy, Clark is not uh, – there's no uh, guilt on his conscience. I, Anthony, I, you articulated it better than I could about uh, perhaps Clark, Clark's mindset um, at the very end of that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a beautiful summary, and, and you, you hit on, on, on all the salient points. And yeah, I mean, I could, I could see how a modern-day viewer would, be, would find the end a little bit jarring, the fact that Superman would, would take these people and exile them. And the fact that he would uh, be as cavalier about their demise as he appears to be at the end. But I, I, I was okay with it. Uh, again, it's different than, it's so funny because I always think about, uh, you know, Smallville's Clark Kent, who was constantly racked with guilt uh, and doubt over the course of 10 seasons. And if, and if he had done something similar, you know, he would have been all torn up about it. Not this Superman. But the way I look at it is, again, going back to the the, the, the time the that we're talking about here, I think the the... Morality was a little bit, a little bit different, and maybe a little bit more black and white. And I feel like for this Superman, he probably figured, "Listen, I didn't kill them. You know, I brought them someplace safe. I was going to take care of them. I told them not to try to climb down. I gave them every chance. They didn't listen. That's what they get." I really think that was kind of the mindset. 
I agree. I agree. I agree. I mean, um, I've got a couple of questions I wish to ask you, sure. but I, I do want to, I want to get this out because it's important to me. And I, I hope and pray that your listeners and viewers will really find this of interest. But um, I will say, uh, there's one thing I want to I, I remember to come back to. But one thing I got to say, as a child growing up and reading comic books throughout the 1960s, and I loved Superman. Kurt Swan is my favorite Superman artist. So I love a lot of the 1960s Superman and action comic stories, World's Finest. I love I love those stories, and I, I have a lot of them still, probably in reprint, but I've kept a lot. But in those stories, Clark, they uh, the comic books really play up Clark as being he goes overboard to have this timid, meek, um, almost uh, a geekish, um, apprehensive personality, where he is not forthright. I, that's not the right word. He, he, he really plays up the timid aspect so no one suspects he's Superman. So he's more mild and meek and timid. There's none of that here. I mean, especially in season one and in season two. But, boy, Clark, I mean, I, I want to get to this because I want to un, unbundle this. I have come to really like the persona and portrayal that George Reeves gave. Because, you know, one thing I, I've said – I've heard before i remember reading this when christian bale first did batman he was learning about the character and one of his interviews he says bruce wayne is the mask this character is really batman in um in the christopher reeve story and in in almost all the stories in the silver age um clark is the mask he's the fake persona he's the timid guy he is going to be so timid people don't connect him being Superman. There's none of that here. I mean, this Clark is very confident, very decisive, uh, very purposeful. He moves with a sense of urgency. Um, he he doesn't take guff from anybody. Like, in, in a couple of episodes, he's almost like a Sam Spade detective in, in the first season. Uh, in the Broken, uh, Broken Statues uh, uh, episode, there's one point when he walks into a jewelry store, and there's two gang members who are leaving. One of these gang members is bigger than him and they're charging at him. And even as Clark, he just starts pushing them around as though they're nothing. So he doesn't take guff from anybody. Um, I will say what fascinated me a lot about season one and season two is he seems, and I don't think this is, is artificial acting. He seems to have great chemistry with children in the few episodes when there's a child star, he seems really, really compassionate. He's smiling. He's having a good time. So he seems, he struck me as in all the episodes I saw in the first two seasons, just this wonderful chemistry with children. But then I also love it at the end, uh, at the end of all the episodes when he breaks the fourth wall and he gives a real great smile and a wink. So his, his acting prowess was better than uh, I think people gave him credit for. So I, I want to get your reaction on all that. What you know? Yeah, he was truly astounding in the role, and I, you know it, it's hard for me to really rank the Superman actors because there are certain aspects that I like. You know, uh, 
I think really for the most part, each of them, you know, brought something, uh, you know, a little bit different and special to the role. It's hard for me to rank them, but I would say after watching these first two seasons, the, the George Reeves uh, depiction of the character is really up there for me. Um, you know, in thinking about, you know, I know I keep saying I've, I've enjoyed these episodes so much and I've really enjoyed them for two primary reasons. Um, the first is that, you know, what might seen, what might be seen as a weakness of the show, the fact that they were so limited by budget and the technology of the time, I think they turned into a great strength because they told stories that they were able to tell on a limited budget, and they ended up being the types of stories you don't typically see, particularly on TV and film, when we're talking about Superman adaptations. They really are these Daily Planet-centric crime stories and mysteries uh, really driven by Clark and Lois and Jimmy and Perry and Inspector Henderson investigating. And they're very small stories in most cases, uh, again, especially in these first two seasons. Uh, not not a single DC Comics villain is used. Not even Lex, who doesn't have any powers. They're all crooks, con men, gangsters, crime bosses. And again, it's it's really Clark and Lois and Jimmy, but really Clark driving you know a lot of the action as he's investigating. And in most episodes, especially in the first season, I noticed a shift in the second season, but especially in the first season. In most episodes, you know, Superman doesn't show up until the very end when they're really in a jam and they need him to rescue them. But for the most True. part, it's so much of, of the investigating. And, uh, you know, as I was watching it, I did not feel like, oh, man, I really wish I could see, you know, Superman fight Brainiac or Zod. I've seen that before, but I've never seen <laughs> a lot of the types of episodes that I've never seen an episode or, or, or read a comic where, you know, Superman's costume gets stolen and he has to track it down. So that was one of the things that I really loved. And, you know, I know I've said this to you many times over the years, and I've probably said it on other podcasts. I've always wanted a Daily Planet centric comic book series uh, in a similar vein to uh, what Gotham Central was for the Batman universe, right? Something really focused on the GCPD cops. I've always wanted something that was really focused on on Clark and his colleagues as reporters, where Superman is really more in the background. And especially for a lot of these season one episodes, I feel like I got that uh, with this yeah. show. So that's the first thing that I really loved that, you know, again, it's a different type of story than you typically get to see. And I I appreciated that and I was there for it. And the other, you know, the other aspect of the show that that really made me a fan uh, was the performance of of George Reeves. I think that he, I mean, not not you know, not to go overboard in my praise, but I think he might have the best uh, mix and balance of at times competing characteristics because as both Clark and Superman, he is decisive and authoritative and tough. And impatient uh, in a lot of instances, um, but he's also kind and caring and compassionate. And you know, I don't know. I mean, I, again, as much as I love all of the other Superman actors, I think in this version we see maybe the best mix uh, of all of those, all of all of those different qualities. And to your point about his chemistry with with children, the last episode of season two is one of the most heartwarming Superman stories I've I've ever experience. It's called Around the World with Superman. And the premise is that uh, the Daily Planet is running this contest uh, for, uh, you know, ch children have to write essays to be considered and the winner will get flown around the world by Superman. And the winner of the contest is this blind girl who, who wanted to win the contest for her mother. And the girl herself is blind and doesn't believe in Superman. 
And there's this amazing scene where Clark, in his Clark Kent garb, um, talks to the girl as Superman, because it's just the two of them in the room and she's blind, so she can't see what he's dressed as. So we see him dressed as Clark, minus the glasses, but he's talking to her as Superman, and he takes uh, like a like a uh, an iron rod and he bends it for her, and he goes into the other room and he says, whisper something and I'll hear it. And, you know, like you said, the way that he was able to uh, to relate to her, the compassion, the kindness, it it was it really like it melted my heart. And it was one of the only episodes. Uh, well, I panic in the sky dealt with, you know, an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. But other than that, it was the only episode. There was no bad guy. There was no bad guy. The premise was, you know, Clark trying to get through to this little girl. And then ultimately he's able to use his X-ray vision to identify a, because she had been blinded in, an, in a car accident, and he's able to use his x-ray vision to identify a fragment of glass in her optic nerve, and he further uses his x-ray vision to guide the doctors in an operation uh, that restores her oh, sight. Wow. And then at the end of the episode, he flies her around the world, and he reunites her and her mother with, with, the, with the father whom they had been estranged from. It was a beautiful, beautiful episode. And again, the type of thing that you don't typically see. And again, that really is an outlier compared to most of the rest of the episodes, but it really stood out and, and just a lovely, lovely episode. Boy, that was a great summary. And, um, yeah, I don't think he could fake it. I mean, he, he seemed to have such a wonderful smile. I mean, there were some other, um, uh, historic videos like when he was selling stamps or Superman Week or Superman Day where a, a bunch of children were all around him. And he seemed so happy just to make them laugh and smile. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to bring this up, too. And I know I, you know, for for audience members, uh, a lot of this stuff Rich and I have already talked about. A lot of it is new, though, too. It's a, it's a good mix. But I know I, I said this to you and I wanted to bring it up. And, you know, earlier in this episode, I mentioned the um, the precursors to to Adventures of Superman, you know, the Fleischer cartoons. Um, but but more specifically, there were two movie serials starring Kirk Allen as Clark and Superman. Uh, there was one in 1948 and one in 1950. And these were 15-chapter uh, serials. And you would get a chapter a week or whatever in front of uh, the, the movie that you were seeing at the theater, right? Correct. So uh, I watched the first few chapters of the first serial. And, you know, for anyone who's not familiar, you, you might have heard about them. They were most notable for the fact that uh, as limited as the Adventures of Superman technology was, it was even more limited, I guess, a few years earlier, because whenever Superman would fly, uh, he would be rendered uh, via animation. So he would turn into a cartoon. Uh, so that's, I think, kind of the, the claim to fame of, of those serials. But, you know, and I don't say this to put down Kirk Allen. I mean, he was our first live action Superman and, and you know, you know, credit where credit's due. But I watched the first few of them and... The costume that Kirk Allen wears is not at all dissimilar from the costume that George Reeves wears. Yet, when Kirk Allen is in that costume running around on screen, to me, he looked like a guy in a Halloween costume running around. When George Reeves, in mostly the same costume, you know, uh, you know, jumps into frame on Adventures of Superman, I buy that he's Superman. There was a, it's the sort of thing, right? Like you can't teach that in acting school. There was a presence that he had and he just made you believe. And I think it's his performance that transcends the limitations of the budget. Because, you know, in terms of his powers generally, and especially the flying, I mean, they're depicted in pretty rudimentary ways, but it's like, it doesn't matter 
because he has that presence and it's like you buy that he's Superman. And that yeah. was something that I really, because did you watch any of the Kirk Allen serials? No, I wasn't able to. I mean, I think on some of the DVD sets, you gave me uh, some DVDs. I just, I think they might have like a a brief vignette, but they, they didn't dig into it. Um, now, to your point, um, I do want to say this, uh, probably four different thoughts and I, I didn't plan on this, so to your listeners, I'm, I'm commingling all these ideas. But from what I've learned, and Anthony, you can testify to this, when George Reeves first uh, signed signed up to do this and became the actor, he was hesitant. I mean, he, he really wanted to be a feature film star. And at that point in in society there was a lot of disdain for TV, especially, you know, actors felt that if they signed up for TV, they were just cutting their throat. They were not going to be given the opportunity to get back to feature films. And I think even Kirk Allen uh, was originally approached for the TV show and he turned it down, Kirk Allen. Um, I absolutely agree with what you said. I mean, in seasons one and seasons two, when it's, when it's George Reeves in that costume, now he was um, he was a boxer. I mean, he was very proficient as a boxer, and I think his his mother forced him to quit boxing because he he had his nose broken like eight times. But he, from an acting standpoint, the portrayal he depicted a real tough, strong person. So it was very credible when he when he came into the bad guys or when he walked around wearing the costume. It was very credible. Um, he, he also, I think, did a lot of his own stunts, so he was very athletic. I know he was uh, served in World War II in the Air Force, and uh, I think he felt that because he had been away in service and because of the changes in the times, it, it kind of he lost his connections to get into feature films, so he was hesitant to do this TV show. But to his credit, I think he poured his all into that Clark Kent personality and to what you said about seven or eight minutes ago it's so interesting to me how close the two characters are i mean there's other portrayals where there's a gap and again clark is portrayed as one personality superman is very different here they are so close in my mind clark is the real deal but superman is so close it's he's just an extension of the Clark Kent personality in this, in this medium, in this TV show. I, I really do tend to agree with that. I mean, really other than attire, the only real difference in the way he plays both characters, there is, there is a shift in voice in tone. It's, it's not a dramatic one, but it is there. Like his Clark voice is a little bit softer usually, but again, there are plenty of instances where he really gets fired up and there really is not much. You and I have joked about this so many times. It's, I know where you're going. You know, there's, an, there's an episode in season one called night of terror. And I, for the most part, it's not the most memorable episode. Uh, Lois is staying at a at a hotel and bad guys show up and she and, and uh, one of the hotel workers get kidnapped and, and it goes from there. But like the whole thrust of the episode is Lois just trying to get word to the Daily Planet and to Superman about where she is and the fact that she's in danger. And it, it's it becomes a farce, basically. I mean, I don't think it was intended this way, but that's kind of the way I, I, I took it where, you know, she's finally able to get through to Jimmy, uh, Jim. And that's I, there were a number of shifts between seasons one and two, which I want to jump back to in a second. But 
Uh, she leaves or she gets word to Jim. Jim goes to try to rescue her, but he leaves a note. He writes out a note for Clark and he gives it to the Daily Planet secretary and says, make sure Mr. Kent gets this. And she's like, oh, well, I'm about to go out to lunch, so I'll leave it on his desk. And she puts it on his desk and she closes the door and that the little gust of wind that that generates knocks the note to the floor. It gets, uh, you know, taken away uh, when they come around to collect the garbage. And when Clark shows up and the secretary yeah. is trying to help him find the note, like he gets so impatient and so worked up with her. She she even says she's like, there's no need to shout, Mr. Kent. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She gets so flustered. <laughs> he had no time. There are so many instances of, of that in one of the episodes that I just watched. The season two episode is called uh, The Lady in Black, where uh, uh, oh, Jim, Jimmy's apartment sits. Jimmy's. Yeah. And well, I want to come back to that, too. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, Jimmy's kind of freaked out at the place that he's staying. And he calls Clark, who's working late at the planet. And like he wants to talk and Clark is just he has no time for Jimmy. And he's like, Jimmy, kiss your mother and go to sleep. Like, <laughs> But it's like I, it's what I love. See, and I think this is has been and will continue to be a theme on this podcast series. A lot of what we're describing uh, right in the stolen costume and his impatience, it doesn't really jive with with a lot of you know what we think of when we think of Superman. But to me, it still feels like the essence of the character. And I think that's what's, again, so rich about Superman is that you can kind of take these different angles and amplify different aspects of his personality. And it still feels like, like it doesn't feel like this is a character so divorced from the Superman we know, even though, again, you see certain qualities that you don't often uh, when, when, especially in the, in the films and movies. Yeah. Well said. Um, well said. But can I, I got to go back to Jimmy Olsen for a second. Uh, what is with it's? I mean, what age do you think he's supposed to be in this show, roughly? Like early twenties? Late? Oh, I, early twenties would be even on the high side. I, 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 I thought he would be more like nineteen years old, just starting out. You know, kind of right. graduating high school and being young. That that was where I pegged him. Okay. 18, 19, something like that. I think my point will still stand. This kid, he still lives with his mother, which is fine, but apparently he can never stay alone uh, if his mom's not there because <laughs> there are two episodes that stand out. There's one, uh, The Boy Who Hated Superman from season two. Do you remember that one? Is that the one where there is some like gangster? Uh... Yeah, there's a gangster in prison and his nephew is a minor and needs a guardian. And so Clark offers to let the kid stay with him. That kid too, mind you, looked like he was about twenty-five. But well, all right, we'll we'll buy that. Yeah, Maybe he's he like, like seventeen. You know, buying three hundred dollars suits and stuff yes. like that. Yeah, that he tries Jimmy, to you know? he tries to seduce Jimmy to the dark side. Uh, but Clark offers to take this kid in, and he makes the point of saying to the kid and to the judge, he's like, uh, you know, Jim Olson's mother is out of town, so he's staying with me too. And I suspect that was done so that there wouldn't be any sort of uh, nothing untoward about this grown man wanting to take you know take this boy to his home. I agree. But it was just so funny to me that it's like Jimmy's mother is out of town. So it's like he can't stay by himself. And then that Lady in Black episode, the premise of that is that he's staying with this deaf uh, woman uh, in, in her apartment because, again, his mother is out of town. Uh, just just funny to me. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell if you, you could do it better than me. Brief your listeners and viewers on the serial commercials and <laughs> what was allowed and what was not allowed. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if people might have might have heard about this before, it's pretty famous at this point, I think. But uh, as you said, you know, Kellogg's came aboard as the show's sponsor and helped it 
you know, helped got it, you know, get it picked up and, and, you know, continue to produce subsequent seasons. And so the cast would often appear in Kellogg serial commercials. And, uh, I think originally the idea for one of the commercials was for Lois and Clark to be eating cereal in the morning, but that was deemed too suggestive because it implied they had spent the night together. Uh, so instead they swapped Lois with, with Jimmy Olsen, uh, which I guess no one thought that that would raise any questions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, it, the times were different. I mean, there's that, that ghost wolf episode, right. Where, um, Lois and Clark and Jimmy go to this, uh, you know, it's the, right. It's the timber company that the daily planet yeah. uses, right. Uh, For paper supply. Yeah. Uh, logging a timber logging camp. Right. And allegedly there's this werewolf that's terrorizing everyone. And of course that turns out to, uh, not, not be the case, but, uh, you know, Lois is staying in the cabin by herself while, uh, Jimmy and Clark are in the men's barracks. And, uh, and then the, there is a wolf at the window and Lois gets freaked out and she wants to come stay in the barracks. We've been told that there's hundreds of rooms <laughs> and yeah, no one else is beds, there. 150. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Clark, even Clark is like, Lois, that's the men's barracks. Uh, yeah. so yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was a different time, but, um, yeah. To, to pick up on that, a couple of things. Um, absolutely. I do want to let your listeners know as we talk about this again, the budget was, was small. Very, very fast-paced, very quick uh, production pace. I would say in the majority of these, in each show, and Anthony, you said this. Again, there's no major overarching villain. No Lex Luthor, no Brainiac, no Zod, um, none of the other characters. Um, But they were all done in one. You know, basically each one was a discrete episode. Uh, But in most of these uh, episodes, I would say on the high side, Maybe there's 12 or 14 people, even if you count the, uh, the henchmen and stuff like that. There were not big casts in these things. And, um, you know, Anthony, I'm sure you picked up on it. Like in the first season, what did they have? The case of the, the, the talking dummy. And then they followed up with the broken statues. But they had the same two bad guys in each of those episodes. And then there was, uh, in season one, another episode where there was... Um, um, Perry wanted to investigate wrestling, you know, because he thought it was so corrupt. And um, it was a super fantastic, no pun intended, sorry there. That was a bad uh, adjective, but it was a very uh, intense physical thing. I mean, Superman really like fought six or seven guys at the end and they were all big beefy guys. So it really showed his prowess athletically and George Reeves boxing ability when he took these guys out. But, in that episode and in the next episode, uh, the young college student in the wrestling episode was also in that one when they went back to that deserted town. Um, he was the son of the bad guy. Right. So they recycled characters. Uh, that one poor guy that flew the plane in the mind machine, I saw him in about four episodes in different different roles. That poor guy in the mind machine, uh, when Clark, <laughs> Clark clocks him because he has to protect his identity. He's in the plane with this guy, just knocks him out. Uh, but you know, as far as, as far as, uh, there are a few things that I wanted to pick up on, but as far as, uh, as you know, recycling actors, but they recycled a lot of footage too. I mean, you know, and you, you know, you notice this very quickly. I mean, in the first season in particular, all of the flying shots, there's basically like two to three flying shots of different angles, uh, that just get used over and over again. Um, there's also, (laughs) and once I noticed this, I could not, not see it. Um, 
Is for, this when he runs to the stock room yeah, with for, his hat? For most of the first two seasons, uh, whenever Clark changes to Superman, if he's outside, there's oh. stock footage of him running, like like <laughs> flailing as he's running down the alley, right? And then he comes out as Superman. Or if he's inside the Daily Planet or really anywhere, it's like <laughs> you see him run into the storage closet. But in that, he has his hat on. Yeah. And there are countless scenes where... In the yep. preceding scene, Clark is in his office with no hat, and right. he races out of his office, and then we switch he, to the stock footage, and there's the hat. Yeah, yes. I've Even as a child, I noticed that, that he would leave Perry's office. They'd still be talking. He'd rush out of Perry's office, run to the stock room, <laughs> but he would have his, you know, he'd have his hat in his hand, or he'd take it off as he was running down the hall. I saw that a lot. And then that stock footage with the alley, right, when he, like... Uh, apparently he tried to run in a real herky-jerky way to give the illusion it was super speed. Oh. Uh, now, maybe they could have just sped up the film. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that might have worked a little bit better. It was so, But the thing with the stock room, it just drove me nuts because it's like, how long would it have taken them to, I mean, this, I mean, I'm like this footage is literally two, maybe three seconds. Yeah. It's so, yeah. it's like, how long would it have taken them to do one where he doesn't have his hat? Finally, towards like deep into season two, they finally filmed a new one. Uh, where he's hatless. Uh, so at least there was more consistency. Uh, to your point, though, uh, they, again, most of the characters typically are in their same outfits for almost every episode. I mean, there are even instances, you and I talk, joked about this, where, you know, uh, <laughs> like when Clark and Perry go to go to Haiti, to the jungles of Haiti, and Clark's still in his suit. Uh, but, you know... Or, or, or even the, uh, the the ghost wolf. Yes, yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, um but they did Clark. that for for a specific reason. Uh, you know, I think you hit on this before about how you know quickly they they pump these out. But they would basically do two a week, the two episodes per week, and they would stack the scene. So like they would do a bunch of the scenes in Perry White's office all together. So you know, having everyone in the same costume, you know, made that process more seamless. Again, for the actors, I'm sure that was probably tough to really keep track of. You know what what was going on. Uh, I mean, again, these episodes were largely more plot driven than than character driven or emotion driven or anything like that so i don't know that it was so much of like oh, it's hard for me to get into the mindset of the character nevertheless i'm sure just keeping track of where you are story-wise got True. challenging when you were doing like so many of them agreed and i i also read at some point i don't think they were finite two a week they might have been filming four parts of four so they might mm -hmm. have the perry Perry White office episodes for four episodes being filmed all at once. And that was the advantage of the same clothes, but it's a credit to those actors to remember where they were. And, you know, is this just informational? Is, is Lois in trouble? Is someone stressed out? So kudos to them for um, just being alert as they were and just really being on, on their, you know, on their mark and knowing the lines. I, I don't think the directors had a lot of patience, uh, yeah, uh, probably not. Uh, but, uh, you know, and going back to the physicality of George Reeves. So, you know, in terms of how they handled the his takeoffs and landings, when he was taking off, there was a springboard that he would he would jump on. And, you know, he would he would jump and he would land on it and it would kind of propel him out of frame. Uh, you know, so that took that, you know, that took some physicality. And then I believe there was a like a rope or something that he would swing in on. Right. Yeah. when he was landing. So he did a lot. And. You know, I know we you know keep talking about the the first season and the the type of Superman that this was. He literally engages in fisticuffs 
with the bad guys on a routine basis throughout those season one episodes. I mean, he's literally, and again, this is the sort of thing you don't typically see from Superman unless he's fighting Brainiac or Zod or Doomsday. And, like he's and punching he, people. Yeah. To your point, that wrestling episode at the very end, there's a scene when he goes into the gym and there's like six or eight wrestlers and, you know, I'm sorry, six or seven, but absent the boss, all the other guys are basically bigger and heavier than than George Reeves, and, and it really choreographed well. I mean, it looks like he's really throwing punches. It it's exciting to watch, even though it's sixty five years old. I I still get jazzed watching that, just because of the action. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, uh, those people didn't get paid a lot. I heard they got like two hundred dollars an episode. So. You know, kudos to them for what they did um, just to deliver on this. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, just circling back to the stolen costume, I think one of the reasons why. So obviously that stands out for the ending and the way Superman deals with the criminals who know his identity. But beyond that, I think it, it's probably my favorite episode of the first season and one of my favorite favorites in general um, but the two things that I really liked about it one is that the stakes were personal for for Clark in this episode in a way that they typically weren't right like typically they were solving mysteries solving crimes uh, you know you mentioned the the case of the broken statues right the premise of that was that these guys were going around uh, to like antique stores all over town and paying for statues that they were smashing and no one could figure out why they were doing that, right? And then, of course, we find out that uh, one of the statues has a key to a lockbox uh, with stolen goods, right? And they were trying to track it down. That's kind of representative of, of the gist of a lot of these episodes, especially in the first season, like cases that, that the, our characters are trying to solve. And, you know, in some cases... We're in the dark, as as are the characters. In other cases, like with the Night of Terror, we know what's going on, but it's a matter of Clark, Superman, finding out what's going on. Agreed. And that one episode where they returned to Lois's home, uh, her yeah. hometown, the village where she grew up, we were learning, you know, the viewers were learning as they were learning. So it made it very interesting. You know, um, we were both learning simultaneously. Yes. Uh, um, those tended to be more engaging. The ones where we were ahead of the characters and it was just a matter of, again, like Clark figuring out which cabin Lois was staying at that. Those were a little bit more tedious. Um, but that's why I like the stolen costume so much. Cause it really did kind of break with that formula and the stakes were much more personal. Uh, so I, I really liked that a lot. Uh, but that's sort of the, you know, the gist of a lot of those season one episodes, um, as we, I know we've, we've hit on this, but I want to unpack it a little bit more, the shift that occurred uh, between seasons one and two, because I was really looking at these episodes very closely based on what we had talked about. I'll be honest, I did not notice so much of a sci-fi influence in the second season. There is an episode with synthetic kryptonite, and of course there's Panic in the Sky with the asteroid. Uh, there's also an episode with a machine that can plot crimes. But other than that... Um, well, wasn't there also an episode where a nuclear reactor went into overdrive? Yes, where he goes radioactive, Yes, that's a good one. You're yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so there were like there were a few more like that. But I would say that as a whole, uh, just in terms of, you know, the the types of cases that they were up against, I felt like it was of a piece with the first season. But the changes that I really did notice, uh, for one thing, Superman is not throwing nearly as many punches. Uh, there are a few, uh, oh, but it, very before, few. I'm so sorry. But you, you, I want to come back to something you said. Um, at the... Prior to that, that re-editing of the feature film from 1951, the final, final episode 
from a filming standpoint was um, <laughs> Crime Wave. Was yeah. it Crime Wave? But they recycled so much of the prior 23 episodes. They did put it real fast-paced together again and he, as he's taking out the different gangs. They put all – they edited all that. So you, you saw him re, uh, re-throwing the same punch you might have seen uh, three weeks earlier or something like that. Uh, so, you know, that that's something where they didn't waste a film that was already captured. Yeah, I'm so glad um, you brought that up. That that episode really did stand out. Yeah, Crime Wave, um, the third to last episode if you know, you're looking at your DVDs of, of the first season. And, yeah, it was so funny watching that because I'm like – is this entire thing going to be a clip show? I mean, they like, like minutes go by where it's, yeah, primarily footage from past episodes and also like newsreel footage that they spliced in, um, as they're depict, as the narrator is explaining this, uh, crime wave that's been going on. And it like, I'll be honest, I didn't mind it. And I thought it was pretty clever and economical of the producers. Cause it's like, now they have a season's worth of footage of Superman punching bad guys. And it's like they put it all together and made it appear like, okay, this is a new episode where Superman is busting up uh, all of these crime rings one after the other. Agreed. Um, totally agreed. There, One of the funniest things about that is uh, the bad guys in the episode obtain footage of Clark turning into <laughs> Superman. They get footage of the scene that we described, that stock footage of Clark running into the alley and coming out as Superman. And... After they get this information, they call the Daily Planet for Clark Kent and they ask for Superman. And, you know, ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, Superman wins. But you, you figure like, OK, like some, they're gonna, there's going to be some payoff to the fact that these bad guys know it is completely dropped, which is kind of baffling. But uh, it was so funny because as I was watching that and I think there's like four of them as they're sitting there watching the footage of Clark changing into Superman. And I thought to myself, oh, you guys are getting a trip to that mountaintop. Just yeah, you yes. wait. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Anthony, if you think about it, the uh, the apartment that they were in in that very last one with the four watching the film, that was the exact same setup as the stolen costume. Because when um, the guy who got shot comes in, they let him lay down on that same uh, sofa that the four of them were watching the movie on in the second episode. So they, they kind of reused the same set. Uh, which which subliminally on a subconscious level kind of opens the path to uh oh you guys are gonna get you're you're going to the mountain yeah for sure uh so it was baffling that they didn't follow up on that um i mean there there's all kinds of funny stuff like in the preceding episode czar of the underworld uh clark had written a series of articles about this crime boss and it was being adapted into a movie and clark and inspector henderson were, were flying out to hollywood to consult on the movie and the, the crime boss, who was the subject of the articles and the movie, uh, tries to take out Clark before he and Henderson go to the airport. And someone takes a shot at Clark in the office and, of course, you know, doesn't <laughs> doesn't get him. But it was just so funny to me because Henderson is like, we got to we got to try to, you know, get that guy. We got to find who was shooting at you. And Clark is just like, no, we got a plane to catch. <laughs> <laughs> but like and Henderson goes along with it this guy yeah. <laughs> Inspector Henderson yeah. is just like okay no problem uh, oh yeah. another thing though going back it's all it's all f- like flooding out now but I know we had talked about this one of the early episodes it might be the broken statues one I forget but uh, the scene where uh, Henderson and Clark are interrogating uh, one of the bad guys and Henderson says like he rolls up his sleeves and yeah, he's like yeah. we're gonna do this the hard way and yeah. Clark is right there for it I mean again really like another sign of the times I mean, sadly, right. we know that this still continues to this day, but the way that it was depicted and glorified in this, uh, this was, was, was really kind of, yeah. Definitely pre-Miranda. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah uh, 
they don't put anything on screen, but yeah, uh, Henderson goes, yeah, we'll do this the hard way. And he starts undoing his shirt and rolling up his, his sleeves. And then the next scene is the guy's got his hat off and he's kind of sweaty and disheveled. And uh, Clark's just sitting there watching the whole thing. I mean, now, to your point, you said frequently Clark will be a, possibly a, a notch softer than Superman in, in tone. Right. But in that Ghost Wolf one, there's one scene where uh, Lois and Clark are a little suspicious of the supervisor for the timber company, right? And Lois kind of goes, you know, I, I got some, some questions about him and some concerns. And Clark is really tough. I mean, he's like Sam Spade. He goes, look, we'll get the answers, even if we have to dig them out the hard way, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah, it's, uh, there's so, I mean, you know, we, there are countless examples of the things that we're talking about. Um, I, you know, I want to circle back to sort of the shift that happened in season two, but before that, because I, I keep meaning to bring this up and I, I keep forgetting, so I want to make sure I say it. Going back to this idea of the the duality of Clark and Superman and how, how close they were uh, and that I, I agree with your assessment that Superman really was just an extension of Clark. I mean, it's it's a far, far cry from the Christopher Reeve performance in the in the Richard Donner movie where, you know, you can buy how people really wouldn't be able to recognize that they're the same person, but it's at the expense of the character of Clark, right, in those movies where he's such a caricature, he's so bumbling, he's such a cartoon. Um, you know, it, it, they really do Clark justice for the most part uh, in Adventures of Superman. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about and I know that I'm, you know, this is a little nitpicky, but just bear with me on this little thought exercise because I, I, this kept coming into my head. And I think this is a function of exactly what you said earlier, the fact that, you know, generally, you know, we, you weren't dealing with a ton of like a huge cast in, in most of these episodes. Right. And among the allies, it's the same group. Right. It's Lois, Jimmy, Perry, Henderson. And it got me thinking about like, why does why does Clark typically separate his identities? Right. It's like the common reasons, right? So that he can live a normal life, right? So that he can protect the people close to him. But in this show, he interacts with literally the same three to four people as both Clark and Superman every episode. He seems to have no life outside of being a reporter for the planet. It's like he's either at the planet working on a story or he's sleeping. Like that's really it. And so it got me, it's like, at a certain point, it's like, why even bother? Like, I don't know what, like, it just complicates his life to have to keep up this charade. And again, I know it's part of the character. Like, I believe me, I get all of that. But it's just like, just mostly in the context of this show, where he really is dealing with the same group of people <laughs> in both no. identities. It's like, why? Why no, bother? Anthony, it's funny. I'll, I thought about that, but the answer I came up with is... And I do want to dig on this. It's more consistency with the comics, right? I think that if – and you're absolutely right. In the context of the TV show, it's so confined. You know, why have a separate identity, right? Because – and I, I want to – there's two things I want to come back to. But I think, uh, again, in season two when the people from D.C. National Comics went out to California and Whitney Ellsworth took a much more active role in being the story editor or the, the showrunner, I think they were concerned that if they made too radical a change in the TV show, it would limit their uh, the the 12-cent comic books that were being published at the time. I did think about that, though, because now the other thing I want to get into 
and you, you cut me off if you want to say, look, Rich, I want to do this the next episode. But in the Panic in the Sky episode, and that's, I would say Panic in the Sky from season two is my favorite, bar none. Bar none. I could probably talk for 20 minutes on that alone. But there is one scene, and I, I want to give it away because it's, it's both telling and humorous. But uh, can I get into it now? You tell me. You're, you're the driver. Well, so let me say this. So you and I are going to do an episode of Digging Deeper, the official uh, Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast, uh, which will be out on my Patreon page uh, in one week. And in that episode, we're going to shine a bright spotlight on Panic in the Sky. So we're really going to unpack that episode. But I mean, yeah, if there's if there's like one thing in particular that you want to you well, share. The only thing yeah, I yeah, want to yeah. say, I, I'm not I, I'm I'm going to adhere to your your piloting of this. I'm with you. But for 10 seconds, there's one scene after uh, something happens to Clark. Clark is in his bed and he's healing. You know, he, he was injured. But Perry and Lois and Jimmy are all there. And the fact that they couldn't put two and two together flabbergasts me, you know. Uh, it just cracked me up. It's hilarious. There's also a great moment where, you know, uh, Jimmy somehow off screen is able to get Clark, who's not a small man, from the shower where he's collapsed, uh, fully clothed into, into his bed. Into pajamas. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you and I will break that episode down in full on the Digging Deeper episode. I hope I hope people will uh, tune in for that in a week. Um, but yeah, I want to talk more about the identity and also the, the one other point that I wanted to make about um, how much I enjoyed the types of stories that they told because in most, in a lot of instances, uh, they, they were stories that really required Clark and Clark's investigative abilities. Like there were numerous instances where Jimmy or another character would say like, boy, I wish we could get a hold of Superman. And Clark would say, well, you know, there's really nothing, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but basically like there's not much Clark would be able to, uh, Superman would be able to do here. Like there's at least one episode where they're trying to find someone and, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing that Superman necessarily would be able to to do any better than Clark would as a report. So I like that, that there were a lot of stories where it really was about trying to figure something out um, as opposed to, oh, we need Superman's powers. It's like, yes, ultimately they all needed to be rescued at the end of the episode. But before that, it really required, like, like Clark was called upon um, to use his, you know, deductive abilities, which I thought was cool. Uh, but as far as the, the identity, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So my theory, and I know that the show doesn't support this. I know there's not evidence for it, but it makes, it makes me laugh. And I feel like it, uh, adds a, a pretty humorous layer to all of this. My theory is that Lois and Jimmy, maybe Perry, but Lois and Jimmy in particular, full on know that Clark and Superman are one and the same and they just go along with it. And in my mind, uh, you know, Clark will make his excuse. He'll go. And what we don't see is the extension of the scene where they're like, I can't believe he thinks we like we're falling for this, but it's like, oh, let's just humor him. Like he really helps us out. Like it's okay. Uh, again, I know there's no, there's no evidence for that, but it makes me laugh to think about it because it, it so there are a couple of layers to this. One is uh, in terms of how the other characters, uh, you know, what they think of Clark and, and, and Superman. So in, in a number of the early episodes, and I had talked to you about this, uh, Lois in particular will, will make like snide remarks towards Clark about, like in the Panic in the Sky episode in particular, at the beginning of it, you know, everyone's afraid of this asteroid that's coming and, and she's looking out the window and Perry comes in and he's like, where's Clark? And she's like, oh, he's probably hiding in a bunker somewhere. And there are numerous comments that, you know, characters will make about Clark's timidness. 
And that was always a little tough to reconcile because as we've talked about, like as Clark, he, for the most part, like was pretty confident and decisive and authoritative and was like always getting in on the action. So it felt like it was a little hard to reconcile that. But as I watched more episodes, I saw I understood a little bit more about where they were coming from with that because in, in a lot there are a lot of instances where you know when he needs to change into Superman you know as Clark he'll make some excuse of like oh I'm gonna go you know look around which that's that's okay but there's one episode in particular Jet Ace where oh, yes Perry's nephew or yeah, Perry yeah, White's a, nephew is a fighter pilot and he runs into trouble. And so like they're all, you know, listening on the radio uh, as as this guy's in great danger. And Clark is like, oh, like basically says like, I, I can't stand like it's like it's making me too upset. Like I have to go. So that's like one very clear example, right, of, uh, you know, of, of why they might think like, well, there's no way this guy could be Superman because because look how, you know, look how nervous he gets. Uh, but I've noticed like, especially in season two, um, there, there are plenty of episodes where Lois and, and Jimmy are quite suspicious and, and actively try to set out to prove that Clark and Superman are one and the same. Do you remember some of those instances? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, can I just do a non sequitur? Sure. I, I want to get your sense on this and to your listeners. So we did chart out the different seasons you know, and the tone, you know, and, and to me, there's really three big segments, season one, season two, and then the latter four seasons were more child oriented and not as violent. But one thing that I found interesting is there were two different Lois Lanes. In season one, there was an actress known as Phyllis Coates. And and then for the, the other five seasons, uh, Noel Neal who was in some of the Kirk Allen serials came back as Lois Lane. And Anthony, I want to ask you what, what is, you know, you're seeing all this for the first time aside from the, how impressed we are with Clark. And in some ways you could also say this is maybe the adventures of Clark Kent. Cause again, Superman is the extension, but what was, what was your perspective and your thoughts and your take on the two actresses and how they each portrayed Lois Lane? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And that ties in with, you know, what I you know, wanted to circle back to about the shift from season one to season two. And uh, I think it's fair to say that generally speaking, season two was a lot uh, lighter, not as child oriented as as the color seasons would become, but definitely lighter than the first season. Not not as dark. Uh, again, Clark wasn't or Superman wasn't punching bad guys for the most part. He would karate chop them uh, or kind of knock their heads together. Uh, I noticed that a lot of the stories had more of a human interest angle than they had before. Uh, so, in, in, in fact, the first episode of the season, one of my favorites, uh, Five Minutes to Doom. Uh, oh, where, yeah. Where they try to prove the, uh, the the innocence of a man who's sentenced to die. And and again, it really comes down to the work of the, of the reporters. And we only need Superman at the very end uh, to get yep. word to the governor for a stay of yep. execution because the phone lines are down. So that's like the role that Superman plays in that episode as he flies at, at the end. Um, so I noticed more like more human interest stories. Uh, again, definitely the violence was was toned down. I noticed too that he used more of his powers, and that's probably a function of having uh, uh, the the DC personnel you mentioned involved with the show. Because in the first season, obviously he displays his his strength and and flight. Uh, and X-ray vision occasionally, but I noticed in season two way more X-ray vision, super hearing, super breath a few times. Uh, so. Yes. Again, those were some of the things. Uh, Jimmy uh, became uh, far 
uh, far more comedic uh, in the second season, I noticed. And, and even the fact that he went from Jim to Jimmy, a subtle difference, but I think that spoke to the way the character was, was portrayed. I mean, in both seasons, you get an awful lot of uh, jeepers and gee whizzes and gollies from from the character, uh, but even more so in the second season. And he always seemed to have this like wide eyed, like goofy grin uh, plastered on his face in a lot of those season two episodes. Uh, and so I think they really played Jimmy a lot more for comedic relief than they did in the first season. I agree. Um, so those like big picture, those were a lot of the shifts that I noticed uh, from season one to season two. But uh, maybe the biggest one of all really was the change in, in actress from Phyllis Coates to to Noel Neal uh, as Lois. And I, I like them both, but honestly, and I, I think my perception shifted as I watched, like as I fully watched both seasons, um, I give the edge to Phyllis Coates uh, because her Lois was tough. Like she was a real firecracker. She was tough as nails. Uh, I mean, she fought back. She was, she was tough. And I think that um, she, I don't know, I think that captures a little bit more of the essence of Lois. And I also think that it was a more forward, a more progressive choice for that period of time uh, to have a woman who was, who was so strong and so front and center. Now, Noel Neal, her, her version of Lois is still a, a single, you know, working gal, a go-getter. Uh, so I think she still accomplished a lot. And I like her Lois very much. But it's definitely a softer, uh, more feminine Lois. She smiles a lot more. She's I noticed too. There, uh, she and Jim in particular, and maybe this was a function of the friendship between the actors. But I noticed with uh, Noel Neal and Jack Larson, they were a lot more, um, and not in an inappropriate way, but a lot more like handsy, like more touchy feely. Like I noticed a lot more hands on shoulders and things like that than you did uh, in the previous season. So again, I think definitely a softer, more feminine Lois, still tough, but not nearly as tough as Phyllis Coates was. And, you know, there are a couple of instances like uh, there's an episode where Lois and Clark are at the diner and, and just a throwaway line. But Lois is like, I really hope we get that raise so I can buy that new hat. And another episode where I think the one where they go to the to the South American jungle where she comes in and she models her outfit for for Clark and Jimmy. And that felt like I could not see the Phyllis Coates Lois doing that. So I, now I, the last thing I'll say, and I want I want to turn this back over to you because I've been going on and on about this. But um, I, I could see how for audiences, especially audiences at the time in the 50s, I could see why the softer, more feminine Lois that Noel Neal depicted uh, might be more appealing, might be more attractive to, to, to an audience. But, you know, looking at it myself and, and uh, you know, just given the context of, of the time period and everything, I do give the edge to Phyllis Coates. But, but what do you think? Uh, you know, once again, we're in sync. We're on the same frequency. In my view, Phyllis Coates was more true to what I envisioned Lois being. I mean, she was feisty. She was assertive. She was going to take risks to get the story and to do investigation. I think Noel Neal uh, was more docile uh, or more, she was not as feisty, not as assertive. Um, that's my take on the two. Now, as a child, I saw much more of the Noel Neal just because of volume. But um, in retrospect, I like more of the Phyllis Coates portrayal. Um, again, she seemed more independent, more feisty, more brassy. Uh, 
uh, more assertive. Um, I do want to say one thing, one uh, tidbit for the listeners. So this is a credit to George Reeves because early on in season two, uh, some of the directors really gave um, Noel Neal a hard time. They were very rude or brusque or just just hard on her. And it might have been their friendship with Phyllis Coates, who who chose not to come back for season two. I think she might have had other professional commitments. So Phyllis Coates did not return. Noel Neal was there. And the directors were giving her a hard time. And finally, George Reeves got him off on the side and basically said, hey, look, lighten up, right? She doesn't deserve this. So he really stood up for her. And then uh, something else happened with Robert Shane, who portrayed Inspector Henderson. There were some some of the witch hunts in the mid-1950s. And I don't know the details. I don't know the details. But uh, apparently in his youth, Robert Shane might have had some affiliation in college or something with, with um, a social group or the communists or something. And he was really getting lambasted. And once again, George Reeves went to the producers and said, look, lighten up, right? Back off. So that's a credit, I think, to him as a human being. And it's, it's, it's not relevant to his port, portrayal, but I was just impressed with that, that morality and those ethics and, and all that stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, I had heard those stories as well. And, uh, you know, you, you, you like to hear that. Um, obviously, you know, you know, George Reeves, you know, sadly met a, a tragic and very mysterious end. And, and that's actually one of the things that we'll pick up in our next episode uh, as we talk about, you know, a little bit about the later seasons, but also uh, the legacy of the show, the legacy of George Reeves. Um, certainly anything that we, you know, uh, didn't get to in this episode that we that we meant to say we can include in the next one. Before we wrap up, because we've already been going for a little over an hour and a half, and, and I want to make sure we keep this <laughs> under two hours. But uh, I, I guess just to kind of close this out, because I it's it's so worth mentioning. Uh, you know, we talked about the stolen costume, which of course was really a standout of season one. Uh, we're going to do our Patreon episode of Digging Deeper about Panic in the Sky. But I, I'd be remiss if we ended this episode without at least mentioning the face and the voice from season oh, thank two. Thank you. Thank you. Would you like to do the honors of, of explaining the premise? Okay. And, and to your listeners, you can tell I'm getting geeked up. In season two, my two favorite episodes of the 100 plus, I think it was like 102 or 103 episodes. They're very close. One of them clearly is Panic in the Sky. And I, I, we're going to dig into that because that's my favorite, bar none. My second favorite is the face and the voice. And in this episode, um, a crime, a, a mob boss gets this, uh, um, I think, wrestler uh, named Boulder to undergo um, uh, surgery, uh, plastic surgery and voice lessons where he becomes a twin to Superman. Um, and he is an imposter. He, he impersonates Superman and commits robberies. Now, Anthony, we, I think we should dig into this more in our next one, but let me just tease the audience, right? So um, it, to your point, shows the humanity. I mean, one of the key themes in this is at first, Clark is dismissive of this. Like, oh, it's just an imposter, no big deal. But then all of a sudden, someone says, well, we saw this, we saw Superman fly away after he robbed the jewelry store. And that freaks Clark out. He gets really concerned that maybe he's, air quote, sleepwalking or something's happening that he's not consciously aware of. And it does portray the anxiety, the fear he has that 
he might be taking actions with his powers that he is not in control of. And I love how they digged into that. Um, the other thing I loved is it really lets George Reeves show his acting muscles because you you could argue you've got at least three different personalities that Reeves is portraying. Clearly, this imposter, and he does pander to the 1950s gangster D's and D's and Brooklynese speaking. Uh, he has a fake nose on, so he gets to portray this this uh, imposter who's um, you know uh, not eloquent. He gets to portray Clark, who's full of anxiety that something is happening. And then he gets to be at the end that uh, captures the bad guy. So it lets, I thought it let him stretch his acting muscles in different levels. I, I feel the same. Uh, I enjoyed it so much. I mean, I don't know. I might I, I might even give the edge to that over Panic in the Sky. I'd have to rewatch them both together. But I, both phenomenal episodes. But yeah, with the face and the voice, I mean, really, yeah, from an acting standpoint, I think it let George Reeves do the most out of all of these episodes. Um, and it was it was really impressive. It was a lot of fun. I think that the turn in it that I wasn't expecting, that I really found fascinating, was exactly what you just described, where Clark starts to doubt himself. Like, he goes to a doctor, and he's like, is it possible that I'm doing this in my sleep? And so the doubt that they were able to cast on 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 Clark within himself, that was really uh, interesting to me and unexpected. Agreed. Agreed. That was very impactful. That was tremendously impactful. Yeah. Um, and how it was also, I think, um, bold for the times because there was a lot of stigma against um, uh, seeking mental health. Uh, you know, going to a doctor for um, your mental hygiene, your mental health. So I thought that was really progressive of the time and also how quickly he went to a doctor. It, there were also some funny funny scenes in that, that exchange with the doctor when you know, uh, you know, when the doctor says, look, why don't you take a couple of days off? Oh, you're saying something is wrong with me. And the doctor goes, don't get that crazy idea. I go, now you think I'm crazy. I mean, it moved so quickly. And even Henderson at the end, when Superman comes into his office, he's like running around the desk to have the desk uh, physically between him and Superman. So uh, the face and the voice, I think, uh, is the high point from a humor and also giving Reeves the opportunity to stretch his acting muscles. Um, and then I, I do, there's other aspects of Panic in the Sky um, that I think are just so fascinating, more the identity. And, you know, that one scene in that one when Clark still has amnesia, but he's walking around his apartment wearing his Superman costume, but with his glasses on. And you can just tell he's struggling so much to try to figure out what his true identity is, who he is. Um I found that that brief moment very, very fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, throughout the episodes, there are a lot of moments of humor, some intentional, some not. I mean, you hit on this before, but, you know, many episodes do end with either Clark or Superman, you know, giving a knowing look and a wink to the camera. You know, Clark will show up after Superman just saved the day and they'll be like, oh, where were you? Or how'd you get here so fast? And he's like, oh, I really flew, you know, and he'll give that wink. You know, there's so many, there's so many moments uh, like that. Sometimes he slips up. I remember there's one episode where, uh, Superman says to Jimmy, I think it's the lady in black. And he's like, I have to get back to the office. And Jimmy's like, what do you mean, Superman? Like what office? And he's like, oh, I got to help Kent with something at the office. <laughs> or even the, uh, the uh, czar of the underworld. Oh, that's what they would have done to me. Uh, I mean, uh... yeah. Oh, the, uh, the, the face and the voice episode. I, I meant to bring this up because, uh, you know, when, when, the, when we, you know, the, we're, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on initially. And, 
uh, I think it's it's Clark and, and Jimmy. And uh, and Jimmy's like, like, do you think he really did it? And Clark says, I know for a fact that Superman was in bed last night. And Jimmy doesn't follow up on that. But what? I mean, <laughs> you would think that would raise some questions. I mean, I could see if Clark was like, I know there's no way he would do that. It's like, all right. He's like, I know for a fact Superman was in bed last night. And Jimmy's just like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's so much great stuff, um, you know, and I don't know, maybe next in the next episode, maybe we can even do like a quick lightning round as we like rattle through some of the season one and season two episodes that we missed uh, and kind of point out some of the things that we really liked. I'll just say real fast, two episodes in season two that uh, I was really curious to watch and I enjoyed them, but I was a little bit let down. One was uh, the defeat of Superman, where we finally get the introduction of Kryptonite. Uh, and then Superman in Exile, where you had mentioned this before, where uh, Superman is exposed to radiation. He becomes radioactive and he has to exile himself. Um, I, I was hoping for more of an opportunity for Reeves to really kind of stretch the the acting muscles and, and depict a little bit more of maybe the, the fear that Superman would presumably be feeling. I didn't feel like we quite got that so much in those episodes, but they were still interesting. And again, they, they put... They put Clark through his paces in a way that was different than we had seen before. And for uh, the defeat of Superman, the, my favorite aspect of that was the fact that after all of these episodes of Clark as Superman always rescuing Lois and Jimmy, we got one where they had to rescue him from the kryptonite. And I liked that. And I thought that was such a nice touch that they had his back when, you know, when it counted and when they were able to return the favor to him. So I thought that was really Good cool. Point. You know? Good point. Oh, excellent point. Um, all right, so it's been an hour and forty-five minutes. So I think this is <laughs> more than a, than a good enough uh, uh, place to stop here. But uh, Rich, I, this has you know has been even more fun than I thought it would be. It's, it's really been a blast to do this, and I'm so happy that between the digging deeper and the next uh, digging for Kryptonite, we still have two more episodes to talk about Adventures of Superman. Oh, couldn't it couldn't be better? I mean, again, thank you. I never would have delved into this. I never would have explored this uh, had you not suggested it. And again, I was cavalier. I figured I'll just do it off memory. And I'll talk about, you know, um, you know, that little league game. And, and, you know, when I first learned about the origin, this has really, really helped me. So I've derived great enjoyment from studying these things and, and like reading up on the internet. It, it's, it's expanded and it's, it's enhanced my appreciation for the character and also my appreciation for George Reeves. I tip my hat to him. Um, and I, listen, had we not done this, you know, it, it just would have been a footnote in something I knew, you know. Good. Well, I'm glad you've enjoyed this. I've had a blast. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who uh, listened or watched this episode. Uh, so Rich and I will be back in one week on my Patreon page for an episode of Digging Deeper, all about Panic in the Sky, Rich's favorite episode, and one of my favorite episodes as well. And then we'll be back here on Digging for Kryptonite in two weeks uh, with the second uh, uh, part of our discussion of Adventures of Superman, where we talk about the, the legacy of the show. Uh, so I hope that you'll tune in for all of that. And until then, remember... It's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Shegel, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to listen to My Comic Shop History, available on most major podcast platforms. Sign up for exclusive additional content, including the Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.